Welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, is Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. How you doing? I am doing excellent. This is the maiden voyage on my trusty new 416. I'm super happy about this mic. <laughs> hey, Renee, before we get going, I just want to throw a big thank you out to Carlos Manrique Claveo. He uh, edited this episode for us, so thank you very much, Carlos. Carlos is a sound designer and animation producer and director based in South Australia. He's the co-founder of the animation studio Karu Karu and can be found at uh, www.karu-karu.com. That's karukaru.com. He can also be found at audiofabula.com. That's audio-fabula.com. So thank you very much, Carlos. It is so great when uh, listeners volunteer to help us put these shows together. So go check out Carlos's site and uh, let's get going with today's episode. Uh, joining us on the line, it's Nia Hansen. Nia is a busy sound designer and editor. She specializes in the big FX heavy blockbuster films. She's based out of the San Francisco Bay Area. She's at Skywalker Ranch and she's been there for eight years. Her credits include Doctor Strange, Captain America, Winter Soldier, and Civil War, Big Hero 6, and a whole lot of other ones. Just look up Nia Hansen on IMDb. Um, you can follow her there, or you can also go to NiaHansen.com. You can find us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado, and Tim is at Azmuth Audio. Hey, Nia, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. It's really, uh, it's, it's, it's always fun to talk to the Skywalker people. <laughs> You guys are kind of the top of the heap, and so it's always it's always fun to talk to you guys. Yeah, and it's a little bit lonely up here because it's pretty much Skywalker Sound, and that's it. Everyone else is in L.A. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm really happy to be talking to you, Nia. You're kind of like the uh, elusive guest that I've been trying to get on the show for, I think it's been three years since I first asked you to come on the show, but you've been busy, and then we couldn't get <laughs> time together, and it's good to finally that's have right. you on. <laughs> I found you online because there is a blog post somewhere, maybe it was even through Vancouver Film School, about your recordings for uh, Warhorse that you did mm -hmm. many years ago. And that was an awesome story that I wanted to talk to you about. But uh, now you've worked on a million other films since then that are amazing that we want to talk to you about. So you've got an amazing story. So why don't you just give us, our listeners, a quick rundown of uh, your background in audio post. Yeah, so I went to the Vancouver Film School Sound Design for Visual Media Program, uh, which was 12 months long, but they packed about four years of credits. So it was intense and it covered a lot. But um, I worked hard and right before graduation, I got recommended for an internship at Skywalker Sound with Randy Tom. And I started pretty much right away. I interned with Randy for a year um, and then assisted Gary Rydstrom on Warhorse. That was my first sort of big jump. <laughs> and I had worked with horses for seven years uh, when I was a teenager, so that was a perfect fit. Like, I knew horses, I knew recording. Gary's was like, you're in. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a long project. We started in the script phase, uh, which was really cool to see how Gary approached sound design and thinking about the story that the sound was going to play really early on. And I continued with Gary through Brave and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol before starting a long series of jobs for Shannon Mills and Marvel Studios. And I've been on um, a lot of the superhero blockbusters for a while now. That's awesome. I like the way that you started with Randy Tom and then had to slum <laughs> it down <laughs> to Gary Rydstrom. Like, oh, <laughs> so tough. Yeah, it's, it was uh, like I was right out of school and I had I had some good knowledge of 
they covered everything, like every department of editing, uh, field recording, uh, game audio, music production, mixing, like the whole gamut. So you learn a little bit of everything, which was really cool. Uh, but when I got here, then it was the hard reality of working on huge projects, multiple reels with a big crew coordinating with picture department and other big departments. Uh, so I had to get up to speed really fast. Can you talk a little bit about working with those guys and about kind of what their method was of of teaching you and of, of kind of bringing you up to speed? Yeah, uh, they're all really different. But one thing that I appreciated that resonated with me was their approach was all really organic. So not a ton of plugins and processing. A lot of it was focused on recording and getting an organic sound and working with sounds that still had a natural feel. Even though I was working on really effects-heavy science fiction, fantasy, and superhero films, the idea was to get a sound, to record a sound and work with sounds that have a natural emotion and you just see it on screen and you hear it and you believe that that's the sound. You know, it's not super processed uh, after the fact. In the beginning, I was too shy to ask a bunch of questions, <laughs> which I regret a bit now. <laughs> and Randy Tom is kind of quiet. So, you know, I'd be in my little annex wanting to ask a billion questions because I'm brand new, but wouldn't always have the guts to do it. But I observed him, him and his process a lot. The thing about Randy that impressed me was the way he deals with clients. And I had, I was fortunate to be in on a lot of spotting sessions and um, mix playbacks and sound design playbacks and things like that while I was transcribing. But I got to see the interaction between the designer and the director and how notes and ideas sort of flow around the room and how that translates to the final product. So that was awesome. Uh, with Gary Rydstrom, especially on War Horse, having it start at the script phase and then seeing the actual film months later and seeing what's actually in the movie and what the how the feeling and the visuals in the script translate to the style that they shot. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes there's things that are in the script that you find out, oh, that's not in there anymore. And then there's new things and new ideas. But um, really focusing on driving the story with sound and serving the story at every step, like from big picture view of what do we need to record, um, what kind of emotions do we want in here to, like, single sound effects, how do we make this feel correct? So on Warhorse, what was your specific responsibility? Because that was pretty early on for you. Yeah, it was early on. We started about six months before the main post-production sound was going to start. Uh, so they hadn't even started shooting the movie yet. So I had six months off and on to record and my main focus was horses, <laughs> which I knew really well from my past experience. And I knew how to talk to horse people, and I knew what to look for and where to go. So um, it was a lot of Google searches and cold calling, <laughs> trying to hook up with um, a bunch of horse people in California and up the coast in Washington, Oregon, just collecting as many emotional horse sounds as I could because there's there's tons of horse sounds in libraries commercial libraries and our library but since the horses were the main character in that film really getting emotional vocals and some rare moments like full births and sick horses and dying horses and the whole gamut how long did that process take uh, it was about six months off and on 
Because wow. it's hard to it's hard to schedule everything. Um, and I was traveling around from Southern California to Northern California and all around. Um, so we had about six months of just collecting brand new sounds. And then when the post-production started in full, we were organizing it and getting it ready uh, for the editors to be able to grab. Because you have a ton of material after six months of recording. You got to sort of weed through it and, and pick out the moments that you want to feature in the movie. That's really cool. Horses are so dynamic and expressive and um, mm-hmm. and a little dangerous. Um, <laughs> and so I've, <laughs> I've done, you know, just a handful of horse recordings and it's it's a very challenging um, animal to record, but it's super rewarding when you get the thing you're looking for. Yeah. And I'm glad I had the experience I did because I felt, you know, really comfortable around them and reading their body language. <laughs> and I could kind of tell what emotions and vocals were coming from their body language. And um, we also recorded a lot of mini horses because they sound like horses, but they're higher pitched and they're a lot more expressive. They have some attitude. (laughs) Um, So we recorded mini horses and then either used them for the full stage of Joey or we pitched them down to be a normal horse pitch, but they had the extra expressiveness of the mini horse. It was cool. So you were in charge of both recording and all the metadata entry and everything, the editing down of the files as well then, right? Yeah, so I would record and then take all that back, work tape it, clean it up if need be, and then metadata, stick it in the library. So you worked on War Horse, and then how did you go from War Horse into all these Marvel pictures? (laughs) So I did a couple more movies with Gary Rydstrom, and then I was doing little bits here and there for Shannon Mills, who quickly got swept into the Marvel world and took me along with him with some other teammates of ours here at Skywalker. And it's gone really well, so Marvel's asked us to come back (laughs) multiple times. Cool. So the first Marvel film I did was Thor 2 The Dark World. And it looks like over the next several films from that kind of point, you went from sound effects editor to sound designer and Foley editor and Foley supervisor. How did you kind of like step into the different roles? Because I know in that world, most people, they tend to specialize and kind of lock off. And it looks like you've been swimming around in a couple of different areas there. Yeah. On a lot of these films, I had three or four roles. (laughs) They're not all on IMDb. (laughs) But because I could do a lot of different things, I'd often be shouldered with a bunch of different roles. Um, Foley editor and supervisor was sort of an easy stepping stone from being an assistant. And then at the same time, I was recording sound effects early on, working on those sound effects while I work taped them and starting to learn plugins and starting to do kind of more design stuff. So making those recordings of mine into cool new things that, you know, maybe they're useful, maybe they're not. But I was getting my (laughs) experience up and sort of just playing around in that phase. And then I had a lot of opportunities to do actual sound effects cutting, either a category of stuff. So on Lone Ranger, I was the Foley supervisor, but they also let me cut all the horses, again, because of my horse experience. Um, So I cut all the horse vocals and footsteps in the movie. So I'd get maybe a category of stuff like that. In Captain America Winter Soldier, I did all of Cap Shield throughout the movie. Nice. So things like that. Or I'd get a scene, like a chunk, like, here, Mia, you get this, do your best. So they're kind of, you know, giving you more and more responsibility, building you up. So that was sort of how I grew and then slowly moved out of fully supervising as we found other people to kind of fill those fully roles. 
but I was definitely able to do a lot of different things and excited about a lot of different things. So it was great with Shannon giving me those opportunities and with the Marvel shows being so huge and complex that we need all hands on deck. <laughs> it's good to have people that have multiple hands. So you mentioned in Captain America, you did the, the shield and the shield was something that was basically designed out in the first film. Yeah. How do you deal with, with legacy effects and with stuff that kind of gets handed to you versus um, stuff that you're dreaming up on your own? Yeah, that's a really fun aspect of these superhero movies is a lot of times you have these legacy sounds that people know, they recognize, so you got to match it. But either come up with more material because you're limited in your palette, or it's doing something new now or interacting with another superpower, so you have to kind of make a combo effect. On the Captain America movies, we had some shield sounds from the original. And that kind of has that uh, uh, what's now sort of iconic metal clang, the vibranium sound. So we made sure to, to bring some of that in. And we also tried to replicate it with our own recordings and sound design, which is tough, especially because you think to record really thick, solid, heavy metal but sometimes the denser the metal, it just makes a little tink sound. It doesn't make a huge sound that you expect. <laughs> and we had the same problem with Thor 2, The Dark World, doing Thor's hammer. <laughs> Again, a big piece of metal that if you record that, it doesn't really sound like you think it does. <laughs> so we made a lot of new recordings and tried to get close to that original sound, but also layering in that original sound here and there. I've definitely found that, you know, when you try and make big things, if you use medium and small sounding props, <laughs> because what happens is if you have a big thing, your transient so outruns kind of the rest of the detail and the grit and the and the texture, um, you just, you don't, you don't get it all. Mm -hmm. And so like I'm doing a little arrow library right now and I just used a tiny little hatchet and some of the most big, crazy sounding stuff is when I was just kind of barely whacking at a book and it just sounds like this big giant thing, but it's not some big giant movement, you know? So you mentioned that you're dealing with legacy sounds. I'm wondering with Marvel, because it's in, well, they call it the Marvel universe. Are you having to think about how sounds will work in movies that haven't been made yet? Like, do you have to worry that this person's sounds are different enough from this other character's sounds, even though they're not in the same movie yet? We haven't run into that in particular yet, but we're starting to get into that territory as we have more things converging in Marvel's Phase 3. But Civil War was the first time we had a lot of character interaction. Mm -hmm. So in the last third of the film, there's a airport battle with six superheroes against six other superheroes. So it was really important to be able to understand what was happening. You know, even if you close your eyes, you know who's hitting who <laughs> and what just happened because it's nonstop for like 30 minutes. <laughs> and we had a lot of sounds that hadn't occurred before. So yes. in The Winter Soldier, we had Cap's arm, our um, Winter Soldier's arm on Cap's shield was a unique sound that's different from Winter Soldier's arm hitting things or Cap shield hitting things. So you have like a connection and then you have a new sound for that moment. But in Civil War, we had a bunch of those moments. So we had, I think I counted it out before. There were like uh, six to 10 different kind of new interactions that needed a new unique sound. So we have Black Panther's vibranium suit on Cap's vibranium shield. We have him against Winter Soldier's metal arm. <laughs> we have metal arm against Iron Man metal we have. So there's all these combos that have never happened mm -hmm. before and need to sound cool, especially the vibranium stuff took a lot of work. 
because that's not a natural metal. It's like a magic meteorite metal that needs to have a special sound. It needs to sound really cool. So there were a lot of moments of intersection that we had to work around. So like, what's your process for that? What's your headspace when you've got two kind of defined sounds and you need to make something different? How do you approach it? Well, the hard part is uh, trying to figure out how to make it recognizable as those two. So does it need to have elements of those two combined together or should it just be a brand new sound? Um, And I think for the most part, it worked better to just have a brand new sound rather than trying to combine two existing sort of legacy sounds together into a new sound. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of cases with the metal stuff, finding a unique tonal signature worked well because we really remember tonal stuff in our brains. It just sticks out. But it's hard to find moments for that because it clashes with the music so easily. So finding like a, a really interesting tonal metal impact and ring out was hard because <laughs> we had a lot of those sort of moments through the film and it couldn't clash with music and it had to be instantly like that's happening right there. So just playing with a big palette of resonant metal hits and musical hits and, you know, warping them, trying to get some movement out of it after the fact because just a straight reverb tail doesn't really work well. It needs to have some motion. And with a lot of these unique superhero sounds, the motion is what sells it, especially in the mix. Like, you won't often read something. It'll get buried in all the frenetic action and music going on. But if you can make a cool sound that has some kind of internal motion, not necessarily panning, but some kind of warble or delay or something that's moving the tones around, that reads a lot better. And even in the midst of all the action and music, you can pick that out with your ears. Are you ever surprised with what the mixers do with your work? I am. And that's part of why I like sitting in on the premix. <laughs> Because we'll pan things in our Pro Tools sessions and, you know, we'll get it pretty in pretty good shape. We'll pull levels down on things and clip gain and all that so that it sounds, you know, pretty good in our edit room. But then we'll get in the premix stage and sometimes the mixer will take something that you did and do something totally different with it. And you're like, oh, I didn't think it could sound that cool. <laughs> you know, he's panning it different or, you know, moving it a different way or just filling the room out differently than you did. And part of that is just hearing it in the big mix room (laughs) for the first time. It sounds so much more like a movie than it ever does in your headphones or in a little edit room. Can you describe your workspace at Skywalker? So right now I'm in what we call a pod room, which is basically a little tiny mix theater. So my front wall is a big projector screen and... um, I'm in a room for mixing and I'm doing sound design right now. So right now there's a icon that spans the entire width of the room, which isn't really ideal, but <laughs> that's what I got right now. <laughs> and um, two screens in here, one for sound miner and plugins and stuff. And the other one is my Pro Tools edit window. So can you talk to us a little bit about kind of the nuts and bolts of how a big collaborative edit like this kind of gets organized and passed around. Like, for example, you know, when you're dealing with Cap's shield, do they hand you a template and a set of time codes and cues and spots? Or do they, like, what's the process there as far as what kind of sessions they hand you and what you hand back? Yeah, so since um, Captain America, Winter Soldier, we've pretty much had the same crew 
for all the Marvel films, which has been awesome because it makes it really easy. Uh, we have an effects session template that has all our pre-dubs A through P or however far we have to go down um, with a bunch of stereo and mono tracks each pre-dub. And that's the template we work with for every movie now. So we get that. And all the editors pretty much know the drill now. <laughs> so you're given your reel and you start running. Sometimes you'll have early scenes that have been done and have been conformed into the reel. So you'll have material from months before to you know, keep improving and wrangle. But we don't do a lot of temp mixes. So there isn't like a, a whole rough coverage of the film. Most of the time it's a blank slate. In the past we've done more category stuff. So, you know, a younger editor or an editor that doesn't have a lot of time may be given a category, kind of like I was given Cap Shield. So throughout the whole movie you're just focusing on this one thing to make it consistent throughout. But now we usually just go by reels. And if there's a particular specific sound, there'll be files for that in the library that are easy to cut from. And then you hand back Pro Tools sessions that have, I guess, flattened volume grass with clip gain kind of built in to get everything in place? Yeah, we used to do a lot more volume graphing, but now that we have clip gain, it's so much easier to just <laughs> do it with your mouse and a couple keys. So mostly we spot in files and then we're clip gaining them and getting everything in a good space. And we have VCAs every pre-dub, but most of them are pretty flat. Most of the mixing kind of stuff is just panning and clip gain. Cool. I recently just saw Doctor Strange, which you worked on. And yeah. like I think every moment of that film is a special effect, pretty much. <laughs> uh, so like, yeah. obviously you're not getting all the special effects months and months in advance. I'm sure they're flying in at the last moment. So how are you prepping for that last minute crunch at the end of the film when I've, all the shots start rolling in? On Doctor Strange, I started, from the from the time it released, I started about a whole year earlier um, with just like a grocery list of things that would be in the movie without much description about them, just kind of a name and make this sound. No pictures, <laughs> no visual, no concept art, nothing. So I started with a really blank slate, which super early on, that's fun because there's no limits. You can make whatever you want. I'm sort of making up a visual in my head, following, you know, oh, this is cool, or I find a sound that's interesting and sort of go down that rabbit hole. So we started out really early on with a big palette of sounds that I designed that may or may not be useful in the movie later. <laughs> and then as we finally got deep into post-production and we saw the movie and we saw what was in the movie and um, saw the previs, which isn't always what the final visual effect's going to look like, then it's like, oh, that's what that is. I got to do something different or tweak it a little bit. Sometimes it's close. So I'll go back to my original sort of play ideas and play on that a little more <laughs> in the direction that it actually seems like it's going. But a lot of concepts are in flux throughout the movie and we often really don't see what's going on until we're in the final mix. <laughs> During the final mix, we're getting visual effects turnovers the whole time. So there will be some new ideas that show up or some tweaks on the ideas. A lot of times it's things like uh, particle effects and lighting, which can have a big impact on sound yep. that you don't see until later, <laughs> until the very, very, very end. But luckily, I'm kind of used to that whole runaround. <laughs> 
And having been able to start really early, I had a good palette to draw from. And the base of the sounds that ended up in the movie were pretty solid from early on. So then it was just adding in layers, like adding different kinds of sparks or uh, different tone or like some warpiness or different extra layers. But the core of the sound ended up working pretty well for most things. It's hard to overstate how important the palette building stage of any of these projects is. Yeah, in a previous episode, we talked to Dave Whitehead about that a lot. He had a ton to say about it. And and he basically spent the whole episode with us talking about how he goes about palette building and how important it is to do so much recording and editing on the front end of stuff just so that you can get your creative juices flowing, but also so that you can have stuff to hand to the director and to the editors so that if they start falling in love with certain sounds, it's sounds that you already kind of have had your hands on and that are going to be useful. So if they start getting that tempitis, it's not going to be a big deal because they've got good sounds in their hands and not some crappy thing from some 30-year-old library. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's great to work with picture editors that understand that and want things from you early on to put in and to kind of get in people's ears and to get in their head as they're cutting. It's awesome to have them understand that. And it's awesome to start really early on because... During the final mix and the crunch phase, if something comes up, you may only have a couple hours to do new sound design for something, either something that just showed up that's new visual effect or something that's been around that needs a new iteration or looks different now. So sometimes I may get a note and I only have a couple hours to get my creative juices flowing and get my gears going (laughs) and make something totally new and awesome in a really short amount of time. So I try to front load (laughs) if I get the opportunity to do sound design really early on. um, I try and be as prolific as possible and get a lot of ideas going while I have the space and the quiet to do it. And it's not in that frenetic final mix environment because it's it's tough to, you know, completely sound design something new and amazing in an hour. (laughs) How do you organize yourself early on when you just kind of have a blank slate? Um... I tend to be kind of messy, I think only because I haven't been burned yet by needing to go back and look at something I made (laughs) and be like, how did I make that? Um, But I generally have, now I've developed a a sound design template session that I like that has, you know, all my plugins and a recording chain and then the source tracks. So I'll, I'll mine through the library looking for things or looking through my recordings and making notes of new things to record. And I'll spot those in and then start messing around with them and go down various rabbit holes with my plugins and write automation those so that hopefully if I need to get back to them, I'll, I'll have an idea of what I was doing and where my head was at the time. And a lot of times I'll design something and print it out and then take that recording, pull it up to my source tracks and do something new with it or pitch it up, down, reverse it, cut it and start kind of blending it together with itself and make something new. And then, so sometimes there's a lot of iterations of the same sound becoming different things. And I think having cut a lot of sound effects, I know how helpful it is sometimes to have variations on a theme. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes in the library, you'll find, you know, one file of something sound design that is awesome, but you wish there was more of it or a little bit different or, you know, Mm -hmm. something that Doppler's by or, so I try and kind of, make a lot of variations that aren't so similar that they're not really useful, but they give the editor some flexibility to kind of grab a a broad palette really quickly and build out a, a moment. 
Do you have any kind of go-to tools that you use outside of just your DAW and SoundMiner? The other software besides uh, Pro Tools that I use is AudioMulch. is a granular synthesis, and I use it on the most basic level. So I throw a sound file in it, like a recording or something that I've already designed, and then I stick some other little units on it and kind of mulch it and pitch it and stretch it and tweak it around and... I record that out to a really long file of some of it's crap and some of it's really good. And then I I stick that in Pro Tools and work tape that and find the gems in it. And I kind of, now I kind of have a sense of when I want to use that and on what stuff and when I don't. Depends on the type of sound and what it looks like. Like Wanda's magic in Captain America Civil War was very sparkly and particulate and had a lot of motion going on. So that was one moment where I was like, all right, I got to find some stuff. I'm going to mulch it. I'm going to kind of get that movement in there, get that pitching in there, make some little clouds of stuff, and then work with those in my usual plug-in chain. Nice. Can you take us through a sound, let's say Doctor Strange, take us through a sound that you were told about early on that was going to be coming, but you hadn't seen anything, and kind of talk (laughs) us through what you recorded and... uh, how you got to your final spot. Oh, geez. <laughs> like maybe the cape? Well, the cape was kind of easy. I'd recorded a bunch of cloth cape and flag sounds for John Carter. Okay. I borrowed from a friend a huge cardboard box filled with all kinds of cloths, all kinds of textiles from like silk to canvas, everything, and recorded that until my arms couldn't flap anymore. I was so tired. <laughs> uh, so I took those recordings, but... Quite a ways on during the production, we learned that they wanted a sort of voice for the cape, mm-hmm. but it still had to sound like cloth. It couldn't be too cheesy or too funny, but it needed to have emotion and phrases like a voice. So I was like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? So I found the zuzziest cloth I could, recorded some zuz, and a lot of the mix rooms here, actually mine right now, has cloth walls with stretch cloth, and then there's a space between the cloth and the wood wall behind it. And in that hollow space, if I drag my fingernails across it, you get kind of a pitch-bending, clothy, zuzz-whoosh <laughs> kind of sound. <laughs> so um, put my mic on that and then ran my hands around it fast, slow, all kinds of variations to get that sound. And then um, used a... EQ and stuff to sort of take out the low end because it's really boomy since it's empty airspace. And those ended up getting in the movie as little expressions in about three spots for the cloak. Cool. That I think fit in well. <laughs> Isn't that funny how you can pick those things out? You know, <clears throat> you're sitting there watching this big dense mix and you're like, yeah, but that was the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and when I'm trying to make the sound, I'm looking at the scene and I'm like, okay, so he's mad because. Strange is trying to go for the axe, and he wants him to go for the bands. So, you know, what's the emotion here? <laughs> what kind of sound can I do to get that? <laughs> and I think that sort of echoes back to what I learned with Randy and Gary of getting to the emotion of what you're trying to convey. <laughs> Did you ever see Randy or Gary really struggle with something, like trying hard to execute something but not finding in their heads what they're trying to do? In other words, did you, did you ever see them hitting walls and overcome creative obstacles? 
I think for most people that happens so internally that we never, <laughs> we never really see it. I know that's true for me too. Like if I'm struggling with something, I kind of get more quiet and more sort of <laughs> tensed up and in my process. I don't always emote it. <laughs> What's most visible is when, when you get led down the wrong path or when the ideas that you're getting either from the picture or from the clients are what they want later. <laughs> So someone changes their mind or the story's going in a new direction really late in the process or you get new visual effects that you weren't expecting and it's something different. And that's always tough when minds are changing or visual effects are changing. Then that's when the runaround happens where you've made something and you're feeling good about it. But then the situation changes and you're like, oh, I got to come up with something new. And it wears you down when there's a lot of those iterations and you're on the 12th version of something, and you're like, ah, oh. <laughs> you know, I thought version 5 was working, <laughs> but I had to do another one, another one. And it can be tough sometimes if all the aspects in the film aren't really coming together. Sometimes sound gets beat up on to keep chasing and fix the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so if the visual effect isn't working or something else in the storytelling isn't quite gelling, then we like, you know, we need a sound here that tells this idea <laughs> really clearly. And um, a lot of times people can get so fixated in their head on that idea has to be there, has to be perfect, that the sound, even if it's working, isn't always perfect. <laughs> when you wrap one of these big Marvel films, are you just hoping and praying that your next project is a very simple drama that takes place in a quiet room? <laughs> <laughs> They're exciting to work on because there's a lot of challenges. Sometimes in the thick of it, you're <laughs> stressed out. <laughs> but we have an amazing team on these Marvel films. And that really makes a difference more than anything else, having a, a group of people that you can rely on and you don't have to worry about anything but your little piece. That makes it so much easier. You mentioned Shannon Mills is the supervisor on those shows. Mm -hmm. Who else is working on your team? Dan Lowry is the dialogue supervisor. And we have J.R. Grubbs and Josh Gold are some of our regular sound effects editors. They're awesome. We've gone through a few different Foley teams. And a few different assistants, Steve Orlando, Samson Nesland, and Ryan Frias. A lot of awesome guys here at Skywalker. And harkening back to what I said earlier, a lot of these people can cover a bunch of roles, <laughs> mm -hmm. which I think is crucial on these Marvel films. Like, you know, they can cut some foley, they can cut effects, they can do a picture turnover, <laughs> they can do a bunch of different things, which really helps when things get crazy that we can all help each other. And if someone is thrown in a role that they're not quite confident in, in yet, there's going to be someone else on the team that's done that for years and can be like, hey, I'll show you. <laughs> I'll show you how to do it. That's awesome. It's so good to work around other capable, creative people. It's a very, actually in the world of sound, it's such a unique situation. So many of us are just kind of off on our own you know, we're one or two or three man shops and that's the, uh, that's the long and the short of it. So mm -hmm. how cool is it to really just be immersed in a giant shop full of all of these people that know what the heck they're doing? Yeah. And it, it makes a difference to be on the same kinds of shows with the same kinds of people. <laughs> you really get into a groove and you know what each other expects. Like we know what the mixers need now, how they like things organized, how they like things delivered to them. And you can almost hear them while you're cutting something like, okay, not that sound. <laughs> I'll find a different one. <laughs> and especially on these huge visual effects and sound effects films, it's important to edit in a way that makes the pre-mixing and the final mixing easier. 
Can you speak to that a little bit? Like, what is that methodology? Yeah, well, it's really been teaching me to design and cut sounds that are going to fit well into the mix from the beginning and to make early choices about what's important to hear. So in scenes where a lot's going on visually and there's a lot in the music and the dialogue, there's no room for noisy sounds or poor recordings. Your sound effect choices have to be really clear. And the sounds I design can't be mushy or muffled or they'll just get lost. They have to really be able to stand on their own and poke out through a tough mix. Yeah. Ingredient-based cooking. Yeah. (laughs) These kinds of films have a ton of opportunity for sound, but the real estate in the track is really small. (laughs) The story dialogue always needs to be heard. The music is huge and the driving force behind many scenes. So the sound effects in Foley have to sell the action and emotion in a very concise way usually either in a short amount of time or a limited frequency range. We run into that a lot where, you know, the track is already really full and there's an idea that we have to sell. But you cut a bunch of cool stuff and on its own it sounds perfect, but then you put it in the mix and it's not reading at all. So sometimes the challenge is to find the perfect sound that fits in that perfect space in the soundtrack. (laughs) Just use distortion. It's fine. (laughs) Uh, speak a little bit about how, how your mixers like stuff organized. Yes. So our templates organize with pre-dubs. So we do A, B, C, on through L, hopefully not to P. Depends on the movie. <laughs> and um, we start out at the beginning. Usually it's me. Sometimes it's Shannon making a pre-dub layout. So we'll look through all the reels and... Um, assign each pre-dub specific category so that the editors can just cut and not have to worry too much about things that are conflicting with other things. So by category, you mean this person's weapon is one pre-dub? Yeah. So we'll do like punches and hits and big impacts on A, body falls and other kinds of impacts on B, uh, whooshes and swishes on C, foley effects on D, and it kind of goes down and we get more specific as it goes further down, separating things that are going to need to be separated in the pre-dubs that the mixer has for the final mix. This really got complicated in Civil War during that airport scene where we had six superheroes and we had 12 total superheroes all fighting each other at the same time. So I had to go through and look like, who's not in the same scene with each other (laughs) at the same time to separate the pre-dubs so that we had everybody separate when they needed to be so you basically have to checkerboard the pre-dubs, kind of? Or did you just keep adding new pre-dubs? Um, ideally, you have the same, like, all of Cap Shield on one, all of this other character on another. But it gets complicated when there's multiple layers for stuff. So Cap Shield's hits, we have separate from the resonance his shield makes when he's moving it around, separate from other stuff. So it stacks up really quickly. I can imagine. And the more you marry mm-hmm. stuff together, the less flexibility the mixer will have later. But the more separation you have, then either the wider you're going, which also makes it harder for the mixer, or, you know, you're you're shuffling stuff around to try and make everybody fit in the same big template. And then we try to prioritize sounds in a way that makes the premixing logical. So a lot of times the mixer will want to hear one thing like the bed of a sound before the specifics or, you know, one layer before another layer. So we try and stack things in a way that makes sense. Otherwise, you get a a lot of questions like, uh, am I going to get a boom for this later? (laughs) (laughs) 
Do you use color labeling on the files? Uh, so every pre-dub's its own color. <laughs> okay. So that helps us visually block it out. And then a lot of times if I need to differentiate things within the same pre-dub of tracks, I'll color them. And then a lot of times we'll have specific coloring for panning okay. um, so that the mixer can see without having to ask us what direction things are going. If he's not using the panning we've done in the box, then he can see like, oh, red, that's in the right, blue, that's going to be in the center. So he can kind of get a quick glance of what's wet when you have a bunch of things on the same pre-dub. And it helps cool. me too because I don't always remember <laughs> 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 what things for what. So I either have to look at my own panning or scrub through and be like, oh, that's for the guy on the left in the back. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, what kind of hours do you guys keep when you're crunching at the end of it? <laughs> um, there's no limit when we're crunching at the end. <laughs> we do 10-hour weeks normally, and then we'll often end up working weekends towards the very, very end, and sometimes we'll mix late till, you know, 11 p.m. or later. <laughs> it gets to a point where you... You don't have any more time because you're butting up against a release date. Mm -hmm. You only have either more hours in the day to work or hire more people. But on the final mix, you can't really hire more people unless you have cutting to do. But the cutting's mostly done, so it's just hours at that point. So how long is the crunch on, like, one of these films? Is it three weeks? Is it three months? Probably about three to four weeks. Three to four weeks. Is the final mix crunch. But it's... For me, as a sound designer, it really varies because a lot of times a week will go by and there's no fire alarms yet. And then you'll get a visual effects turnover and there's a bunch of stuff to do in a really short amount of time. And I try and turn it over as fast as I can. And like I mentioned, it's hard to get into creative gear <laughs> at a, the drop of a hat. So the crunch time is really when either something needs to be different, you know, something's not cutting through the mix, or the clients have a request for something different, something new, or another layer, or we get visual effects that look different than before, have an, an added layer, like more sparks or more glare or more warp that needs a sound that have to turn over really fast. Do you like the adrenaline from Crunch, or is it something that you <laughs> dread? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm getting used to it more and more. She's um, not going to come on here and be like, you know what, I hate this. This is awful. No, it, it's tough. <laughs> yeah, because there's the creative, more laid back section. And then there's the holy crap, everything's <laughs> falling on my head at once. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so do you prefer one phase or the other or it's all just part of the package? Um, I think I like having the time to play with sound and, and explore ideas and concepts. Whether there's visuals yet or not, it's nice to kind of be able to really sit there and get my mind going. But I'm finding more and more I'm comfortable with the crunch time. Like, you have two hours. You got to do a new thing for this, like brand new from the ground up. But I'm also kind of finding how they'll play with each other. Like, if I can make a lot of unique ideas really early on before there's any time pressure, then later on in the final mix, when I don't have very much time to come up with something new, a lot of times... The reject ideas from early on, I'll be like, yes, I made a sound <laughs> seven months ago that's perfect for here. <laughs> so a lot of times those fallen by the wayside sounds that never got used will be a good element or a good starting point for something I have to make really fast. 
I definitely find there's a, a tempo that I like to work with, even when there's no pressure on me at all. If I go <laughs> too slow, like I just kind of get lost in it, or it just kind of devolves into nothing, and I just fall into rabbit holes and don't end up making anything <laughs> cool, you know? Yeah, that happens to me a bit. Like I'll go off on a tangent on one sound that may or may not apply to what I was trying to make at all, but it's cool, so I'm going to finish it out and then hope that I remember what I was trying to make. <laughs> or like the sound miner search I was doing, like, what are these sounds? Or, you know, the plugins I was dealing with before. I'm like, what was I doing <laughs> way before this sound that I ended up on? Yeah. How awesome is the Skywalker Sound Library? <laughs> uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> and um, when I was an intern for Randy Tom, one of my jobs during the slow period, so in between projects or if there was nothing else going on, no recording to do, was to digitize his huge library of dat tapes. Oh, wow. So I think I digitized and work taped about 180 dat tapes from really, really old projects. Nice. <laughs> so really old movies or really old recording sessions, sometimes not slated very well. So you're like, what am I listening to? <laughs> or one time I found a dat tape, just the whole thing from start to finish was Ewok vocals. I'm like, okay, wow. I'm just going to transfer this and put some metadata on it, <laughs> leave it as is. Those That's... old dat recorders sounded amazing, though. Yeah, there's some good stuff in there, which is why he was having me digitize it to put it in, you know, to have it usable because it's hard to access otherwise. But it's really cool to come across sounds from movies that are from your childhood or that you remember being really cool. And you're like, oh, sometimes that's a rabbit hole in itself is just listening to sounds yeah. from old movies. Yeah. This has been awesome, Nia. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. You've just been a wealth of information and just knowledge. And it's just fun to hear how big collaborations go down in ways that I don't get to personally witness. So I really appreciate you talking to us about it. Yeah. It's not something I get to talk about with my family or friends. <laughs> <laughs> so it's awesome to talk to you guys. Anytime you want to nerd out, just let us know. We'll get you on an episode of Tonebenders. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Nia. Yeah, thank awesome. you very much. That was really great. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Nia Hansen. Thank you, Nia, for jumping on with us today. Thanks to Stacey Dupas for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at The Tonebenders on Twitter. Go to tonebenderspodcast.com to leave a comment. You can support the podcast by shopping at tonebenderspodcast.com slash Amazon or tonebenderspodcast.com slash BH. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you all next time. See you later. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the ToneBenders on Twitter or find ToneBenders Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at ToneBendersPodcast.com. I said, y'all, because I'm from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> That's staying in. <laughs>